but stay with that. Maybe stay with the rhythm motif. Da 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 da. So you'd use that rhythm for your entire solo. Maybe two choruses. Maybe three. But then tweak it like a little bit, right? And so one chorus would be one episode. Two choruses. Then you change it a little bit. In the second episode, you have a like a slightly different story, but it still blends with the first episode, right? It's not completely different. And then it, you keep going, and then you have this full season, which is your ten chorus solo. You know, <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's how the pros can like Keith Jarrett. Some of these jazz players, they Coltrane, they solo for 20 minutes, you know, and it's because they're staying with these themes, these motifs and these development and they're taking their time. They're building the story episode by episode by episode, which turns into a full season. I'm Ben Capelo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Brendan Lowe. Brendan began playing piano at the age of three. Musically influenced by his father, Malcolm Lowe, the concertmaster of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, Brendan started classical training at New England Conservatory in Boston, Massachusetts. After studying with Angel Rivera, a nationally honored teacher, Brendan heard a recording of Itzhak Perlman playing with a great jazz pianist by the name of Oscar Peterson. From that point on, Brendan's focus switched from classical to jazz piano. He attended the New School University in Manhattan, New York, in which he received his Bachelor of Fine Arts in Jazz Piano Performance. While at the New School, Brendan was able to study piano with such names as Eric Reed, former pianist for Wynton Marsalis, Jerry Allen, Benny Green, Aaron Goldberg, and many others. Brendan now resides in Sacramento, where he both performs and teaches and continues to progress his jazz piano education business. He's also the host of the very popular Jazz Piano School podcast. In this interview, we really got into the nuts and bolts of jazz theory, and I had a lot of fun. Hope you enjoy. Brendan, thanks so much for joining today. Thanks for having me, Ben. I appreciate it. So today we're going to talk about Jazz Piano School and also just about jazz piano teaching in general. Uh, so I've had a lot of people who've come on this podcast where they feel like part of what they do today is inspired by trying to fill in holes that they felt in the training that they received growing up. And I believe you fall under this category as well. Can you talk about some of the ways that some of your perhaps kind of unsatisfying, if that's not too harsh of a word, experiences taking jazz piano lessons growing up led you to create Jazz Piano School? Yes. I love this question. This is a great question. It was completely unsatisfying. That's, okay. that's not a harsh word at all. So I will definitely use that. I, I even go further in a lot of the um, videos that I make for Jazz Piano School. But I found, <clears throat> I found it completely nebulous and just lost, to be frank with you. And I never felt like there was any structure, organization, or any sort of path, you know? Mm -hmm. And I completely get that, you know, I, I, I get pushback sometimes that jazz should be exploratory, which I completely agree with, but to a certain point and almost more towards the end of your learning career. So in the beginning, when I was taking lessons, there wasn't much actual teaching going on. You know, if you compare a high school, middle school, college class to the lessons of taking jazz, completely different universes. You know, it seems like when you go to a college class or some sort of high school class, you know, most of the time they give you a syllabus, you know what you're reading, you know what you're going to learn, you know the curriculum for the semester, right? You kind of have some idea of where you're going. But my first jazz piano lesson was, what do you want to learn? 
And mm. <laughs> I was like, I just want to learn jazz. Yeah. And they're like, okay, so, well, why don't I just play a little bit and then you can kind of let me know what you're looking for. And I was like, okay. <laughs> so that's just a quick analogy. Essentially, my lessons going forward were just more of the same. It was, it was really my teacher playing and me just kind of watching and saying like, oh, that was cool. What was that? And then he would go back to that spot and play it again and be like, oh, that's what I was playing there. But I never really learned the why. Like, how, how do you get yeah. to that point? What's the, what's the path that brings you to learning that type of material? What is that type of material, you know? Based on my own previous experience, I've definitely taken more of a structured and organized learning path for all the students that I teach at Jazz Piano School. And, and I found that it's more helpful to them and that I've gotten a lot of good response from them on the results and the benefits that they've had using my system so yeah that kind of reminds me a lot of different composition teachers i've had composition is my main interest and i had one teacher going up who was very much in just what do you want to write today oh here's some stuff i've written what do you think about that and uh, and then i had other teachers who were really really kind of strict and disciplined and much more into kind of laying down a foundation which i think is what jazz piano schools uh, very helpful with. And so in today's interview, I want to talk about some kind of foundational elements of jazz piano uh, to give our listeners a snippet of kind of what you talk about on your podcast and what you teach in jazz piano school. So the first thing I want to talk about is chord voicings. Um, this is something that I also n believe you have kind of some uh, issues with the way that it's traditionally taught. And I liked your episode. It's called Creating Two Hand Jazz Piano Voicings, where you get into some minutia of the pedagogy of teaching voice uh, voicings, if any of our listeners want to deep dive into this. But just kind of speaking in general, if I could just simulate a situation. So let's say we have a student who comes to you and they know basically like what pitches are in all the triads, what pitches are in the seventh chords, and they understand what first inversion, second inversion is, but they don't really have any intuition about like how to voice these chords. What would like you recommend as kind of a basic first few steps in the teaching sequences for a student like that? So jazz, like a lot of stuff, um, is kind of a spider web. And I think we get, I'll get to the question in a second. I, I think we get caught in roaming around a lot and not realizing what our true goal is, our true intention. Because just like composition, if you go to YouTube and you're trying to learn comp composition, you can find like millions of videos on composition. But if you're trying to learn like one specific thing in composition, like it's going to take you five minutes to search for that. Like, let's say you want to use inflections of Debussy or whoever, you know, mm -hmm. you can search for that and start to apply it very quickly. And so a lot of students, and this was me as well, I didn't really know what I wanted to learn. I just wanted to learn jazz, right? And so a lot of times it turns into this kind of smorgasbord of just like picking pieces here, there, like voicings. Oh, maybe I'll learn some voicings. Maybe I'll learn improv. Like students, we want to learn everything. And I get that. I know that's fun. I do too as well. But yeah. if you narrow down your focus, like you're talking about voicings now, I believe and I teach there's true paths to get to your goal very quickly if you're focusing on the exact things that you need to know to accomplish that result. So if someone is trying to just build their voicings, then rather than kind of learning voicings and going to improv, you know, there's a path to fall to learn voicings. So if you're mentioning extensions and like triads and things like that, so with jazz harmony, you know, the path um, that, that I'm building, actually, we're going to be releasing some new products called um, playbooks. 
And so essentially these are going to be like the specific paths to learn specific categories. So for voicing example, I would go through the triads, major, minor triads, because that's going to be the first step to learning seventh chords. Seventh chords are going to be one extra note onto a three note triad, right? So it makes sense to learn your triads before you learn your seventh chords. But most of the time people jump right into learning seventh chords and they don't even know their triads. It's like, well, why don't you start from square one and build up, right? And obviously we need triads. And then the same goes for moving past seventh chords into more uh, advanced voicings with extensions. So past your seventh chords, we would learn how to split the seventh chord into two hands. And the two most important notes in a seventh chord that dictate the quality are going to be the shells, the three and seven. Mm. And so not to get into too much harmony and theory, but an easy way to split the two hand voicings is if you have your shells in the left hand and then you take one sort of color tone in your right hand. Maybe it's a, a nine. And again, these are also called extensions. I like to um, describe the analogy of extensions to people who aren't really familiar with that term as colors, paint colors. Mm -hmm. So if you have your primary colors, then an extension would be some sort of blend of two primary colors, right? And the primary colors would be like your chord tones. Now, your chord tones would be the four notes that you have in a seventh chord. So you have your primary colors and then you have your extensions, which are kind of like adding colors and, you know, shades and different textures and things like that. Mm -hmm. So if you have your shells in your left hand and then you add on a nine, for example, that would be one color that you'd be adding to the foundation of your voicings. So from there, I mean, there's, there is a whole path that I teach going from triads to seventh chords, to shells, to rootless voicings, to drop to rootless voicings and things like that. But I truly do believe, you know, and it is what I teach that as long as you have a focused intention and you follow a path, you can get your result very, very quickly, very quickly, you know? And I think a lot of people, they're jumping around too much. And again, I don't blame, this is exactly what I did because I didn't have anyone focusing me in or had a teacher that could lead me down that path too. Hmm. But just to be sure I understand. So you would say that the first few steps that you uh, would recommend would be first learn the basic triads and then immediately from there, once you've learned the seventh, learn to play them in that shell voicing you're talking about where the left hand plays the third and the seventh and the right hand is kind of more free. Yeah. So, so okay. to, to get to the specific structure, so I would learn your seventh chords first. And that would be major, minor, um, and dominant seventh chords. And then the next thing that you would need to be able to do is simply just be able to play your shells in your left hand by themselves. Mm -hmm. And that will be in two formations. So the third on the bottom and the seventh yeah, on the top. Or inverted. Seventh, yeah. exactly, or inverted. Mm -hmm. Now the other, the next step from there is going to be rootless voicings. Now the rootless voicings are a very common term used in jazz. And basically the, the purpose of them is to add extensions in a basic way to a voicing. Can I ask a somewhat naive question about rootless yeah, yeah. voicing? Because I've heard you talk about this a lot in your show. Sure. Is the reason not to play the root because we assume the bass player is playing the root? Like, would you ever play rootless if it's a solo context? Yes, yes, so exactly. So they serve, they serve different purposes. The root in a voicing, um, it, it doesn't, because it's meant for a low end support in the harmony, it's not going to be, it's going to be unstable the higher you move in a register. Okay. So if you have a full, uh, and again, that, that kind of de is depends on the purpose of the note. For example, like I, I will use a root in my voicing, but purely in terms for color. Uh -huh. 
Uh, so the purpose yeah. isn't to be the root, it's yeah. to be for a color. Not to clarify what the chord is for the listeners, like what the tonic is or something. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So, but that, that's very, that's more advanced thinking, you know? Right. Um, but yeah, exactly. So rootless voicings are taught so that you're removing the root so that it's, you know, in solo piano, I'm still playing the root down in the lower end to stabilize the harmony. But then I, I would play the rootless voicing. I would jump up to it to play the rootless voicing to get some of those colors and extensions. Awesome. Okay, yeah. so this idea of extensions, I want to talk about that more because this is something that I always have wondered kind of in jazz context. So it's relatively easy to explain to students like kind of what the music theory is of nines and elevens and thirteens and even chromatic alterations to those. But at least what I sometimes find more confusing is like when soloing, figuring out, as you said, like which color to use. So I guess ultimately it comes down to your ear and what sounds good to you. But like when you're working with students on kind of deciding which chordal extensions to use at any given time, is there any kind of method you use with them to work on that? Or is it kind of all just oral? There's always a method, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean... Uh, I, I have a full improvisation path too, um, which doesn't even get into extensions until later on. Hmm. And so a lot of the a lot of the improvisational things that you hear can be played even without thinking about extensions. Like extensions will be utilized in in a different thinking. So for example, like there's a term called bebop approaches, um, or surrounding approaches, or people call them a lot of different things. But those use extensions, but but they're not referred to as extensions. So you're getting an extension sound out of a different approach that's very necessary to improv. Uh, but you're not necessarily thinking that, oh, okay, I'm going to play the flat nine, and then I'm going to play the half step below, and then I'm going to play the root. So like, for example, if I was playing a C, I'd play D flat as a flat nine, B natural is the half step below, and then the root is C. Okay. We call that a double neighbor in the classical world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So even though you're playing a double neighbor, you're not thinking, oh, I'm playing the flat nine. You're just thinking yeah. it's a double neighbor. Right, So right. you're getting an extension sound out mm. of that. But as we move more thoroughly down the path of improv, then yes, you do start learning about what extensions are going to relay or, or demonstrate a certain sound that you're looking for, right? And um, again, there's various tools that kind of, a lot of jazz tools combine things together and then at the highest form are separated. So for example, like I could teach you an altered scale is a very common yeah. jazz thing and that includes lots of extensions. And then as you start to get in higher forms of playing jazz, you know, then we start to separate the extensions individually so that we're developing relationships with each one so that, you know, obviously I know what a sharp 11 is going to sound like and right. what it's going to do feeling wise, you know, um, and how it's going to feel and how it's going right. to sound, how it's going to fall in the chord. But that's, that is very high level stuff, that, you know? Yeah. I don't know if another example of that would be a recent episode I listened to of yours, you talk about upper structure triads where you kind of add one triad on top of another. And so it's an instance where it does end up, of course, adding extensions, but you're not thinking about it in terms of, oh, I added the sharp knot. That's kind of after the fact, fundamentally kind of the gesture comes first of adding two try. I guess that's kind of like what you're talking about with the altered scale that kind of, you, although it ends up having extensions, that's not what you go into it predetermining. Right, right, okay. exactly. And again, a great analogy. I've been watching a lot of MasterChef throughout quarantine. Oh, I love MasterChef. Oh, yeah. oh my goodness. My fiance and I binge that show all the time. Yes, yes. Okay. yes. I just got into it. It's so great. Uh -huh. And so, um, I mean, they're making everything from scratch. 
right? Mm-hmm. So that's like a, the highest level of jazz piano. Hmm. You're, you're picking extensions from scratch. You're putting them in different places from scratch, completely choosing, chosen in the moment spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm doing on gigs. That's what I do on, in solo piano gigs, things like that, trios, whatever. But the upper structure triads are more of like a, a packaged meal. Like you get all the ingredients, it teaches you what to do, but you're not having to like think about what to put in, right? There, it's a preset of extensions and all you got to think is like, okay, triad, triad, boom. And it gives you yeah. this amazing sound. Right, right. Rather than thinking of each individual ingredient that makes right. up the triad. Yeah, I, exactly. great analogy. Exactly. Um, okay, now I want to also talk about kind of soloing in general. Um, I want to just give a plug to our listeners. I really like uh, mm-hmm. your episodes called My 11 Step Improvisation Blueprint. That's all these great tools to consider mm. when soloing. And the one idea that you brought up in that that I thought was really interesting was thinking of a solo as a story. Um, it kind of reminded me in my studio whenever I've tried to work with students on jazz soloing. Kind of what happens is they do a, things where like every moment in of itself vertically sounds fine, but there isn't any kind of large scale kind of narrative or plot or anything. It's definitely not a story. How do you work with students on making their solos feel not disjointed and arbitrary? Yeah, I, I, I teach uh, motifs um, essentially through development. And uh, so essentially like a melodic motif or a rhythmic motif. So, you know, the most catchy things to us are usually just repetitive things and um like nbc like different things like that and if you take one little motif like it could be anything it could be a rhythm like da 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 like that's pretty catchy da 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 and if you if you use that and continuously stay with that but maybe tweak it a little bit right um then you know you can get development through your entire soul like Again, if you're watching, usually on Netflix, they have like 10 episode seasons now. And so again, this is another analogy I used. It would be like if, the, if you took a solo and you crammed 10 episodes into one episode. That's what most people do is they're, they're playing mm, everything. That's so true. Right? Yeah. Yep. You know, the, you, you got to give the story time to develop. So, mm-hmm. so stay with one thing. Like one episode is usually surrounded by one component, like or storyline, small, but it mm-hmm. builds a little bit. Like, obviously, they always leave you with that hook at the end. You're like, oh, wait, I want to go to the next episode, right? But that's the same thing with soloing. So, you know, for a full chorus, I challenge my students to stay with one thing. Maybe stay with the NBC theme or is it NBC or ABC? I, I think don't, it's I don't NBC. NBC? Yeah. Okay, whatever. But stay with that. Maybe stay with the rhythm motif. Da, 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 da. So you'd use that rhythm for your entire solo, maybe two choruses, maybe three, but then tweak it like a little bit, right? And so one chorus would be one episode. Two courses, then you change it a little bit. In the second mm. episode, you have a, like a slightly different story, but it still blends with the first episode, right? It's not completely different. Mm-hmm. And then it, you keep going, and then you have this full season, which is your 10-course solo, you know? <laughs> I mean, it sounds crazy, but that's how the pros can... Like Keith Jarrett, some of these jazz players, they, Coltrane, they solo for 20 minutes, you know? And it's because they're staying with these themes, these motifs, and these development... And they're taking their time. They're building the story episode by episode by episode, which turns into a full season. Yeah, so kind of thinking solos like theme and variations. I Definitely. Guess. Um, okay, now another question about kind of when soloing is picking pitches. I guess I don't want to say in the right hand because it's not always the right hand, but picking pitches in the melody, I guess, is a better way of putting it. Um, it can be kind of ambiguous, especially in jazz situations where you have these really complicated harmonies to know kind of what pool of pitches to select from in the right hand. So um, 
and I'm of course not principally a jazz musician, it's certainly nothing on your level, but in the little jazz education I have gotten, I was taught chord scale theory. So kind of each chord comes along with a possible list of scales and modes, and you kind of have to like memorize which scales go with which chords. Um, And I guess the altered scale, which you mentioned earlier, could be an example of that. But I've also played with some jazz musicians who disagree with chord scale theory, and they kind of just think about what scale the piece is in, and you can adjust the scale depending on any chromatic alterations in the harmony, but it's like about the scale we're in. Can you talk about how you work with students on thinking about the relationship between scale and harmony? Yeah. I would say, you know, that's a, it's a funny topic because definitely like I've, I've heard many people say that like, Oh, I don't, I don't think about it like that. Or like, Oh, that's boring. I don't want to learn that. Students will say that all the time. I said that all the time, honestly, <laughs> when I was okay. growing up, like, why do I have to learn this? Like the, how does this apply? Right. And like, how do I implement this to actually make it sound like Oscar Peterson or something like that? It seems like so far fetched to, to do that. But, um, I'll say this is that guaranteed, like every top jazz pianist that you can think of knows every single chord scale for every single chord. Like there's, there's literally no way they couldn't do it again. And if you think about like great, I don't know anything like their, their knowledge and foundation is so massive that like, of course they've moved through all this material, you know? So I, it, there is a place like when you get to that point that you can switch your thinking. Like, obviously I'm no longer thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Right. So like, I don't visualize that when I'm soloing, but I've, I've built up my foundation. I've built up my knowledge to get to a place where I can do that. Now, again, like to, to work with my students, it is like very boring. It's a boring thing to learn, you know? Um, so my goal as a teacher is to learn how to spice it up like and learn how to make it fun. And so the way that I do that is I really explain the why, like, why are we learning this boring crap? Mm -hmm. And like, what is the purpose of this? Because that's, I I always relate it to how I felt in my lessons because I thought the same thing and I don't want my students to feel the way I did. Right. So I'm able to take the chord scales and utilize them and break them down into small tools and show them that they're very important through improvisational exercises. So if you have a, a C minor seven and like a chord scale you might use over that would be Dorian or Aeolian, I'll demonstrate the amazing sounds you can get from each chord scale. And by knowing the different chord scales and switching the sounds, I can get completely different atmospheres. And when I can isolate the exercises that people learn, you know, they're learning improv. This is all at once in one exercise, improv, they're learning chord tones, they're learning extensions, they're learning chord scales, they're learning how to improvise, you know, with all of it, then it doesn't seem so mundane or, or boring, you know? Um, I think it's when it's rehearsed or practiced in a, a boring way, like, okay, now learn all your scales here, now learn all your scales here. It's like, why am I doing this, you know? Can you talk about what an assignment might be on a given week for a student who's working through chord scale theory in this way? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I always start with a, a two, five, one progression because it's the most common progression in jazz. Yeah. So there's three essential chord scales that people will learn from the two, five, one, and they're going to be the Dorian scale, the Mixolydian scale and the Ionian scale um, with those fancy names. Right. And so essentially before they even get to the two, five, ones, though, they're pre- they're isolating. I'm all about isolation. So they're isolating the Dorian scale with the minor chord first. And so that may look like, 
I wish I had my piano on. You don't do any, do any musical demonstrations here? Yeah, uh, I have my okay. keyboard. You can tell me what to do. <laughs> <laughs> so they would play like a D minor seven in their left hand, and then they would, yeah, there you go. They would improvise with their right hand. Oh, God, like no. <laughs> don't make me do it. <laughs> but that would, it could be anything, right? So so yeah. they, they would improvise with the, the Dorian mode and going up and up and down, like however you wanted. Exactly, exactly. And that's part of building the relationship with the mode, actually, mm. is just to, the biggest thing is like a mental block in, in like the fear of making a mistake, but you really can't. Like every note you play is a step further into building your relationship with that sound, right? Because the Dorian mode is a, is a sound. So as long as you just keep playing with it, you're going to keep mm. building a relationship with the sound. And your ear is training itself. Yeah. Like a lot of people are asking me, like, how do I do ear training? Well, just like play the piano and your ear is actually training itself. So I isolate and then I put all the two, five, one together. And then they would solo over that, obviously, with the different chord scales. Right. And I and assume then, in all of 12 keys. Yeah, or... I, I like to work with what I call the jazz keys first because people find it overwhelming to do 12 keys, which um, jazz keys is seven. So we're moving five keys, but even I kind of will cut that in half too, to, to allow for some more progression. Um, but the jazz keys is, uh, C F B flat, E flat, A flat and G. Okay. Did I miss one? I might've missed one, but it's mainly, it's mainly flat keys with one sharp, which is the key of G. Okay, uh, now switching gears, I want to talk, uh, we've been talking a lot about pitch. I want to talk about rhythm. Um, so for, I think, many teachers, including probably some of our listeners, their knowledge of kind of the rhythmic element of jazz doesn't go much beyond just basic definitions of swinging. And if our listeners don't know about that, you cover this in your episode, How to Swing, um, just in the sense of swung eighth notes being felt in triplets, and the first eighth is two-thirds of the beat, and the second is one-third. But, of course, that's different between, there's a difference between holding the pitches for the right duration and really kind of grooving and playing a, to use a term that you use in the pocket. Uh, so how do you suggest working with students on making their playing groove and not just correctly line up with the metronome? Yeah, it's, that's, it's hard, honestly. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really hard to, to, um, to do that. And I think it requires <clears throat> a lot of, of listen. This is actually where this is, kind of more of a nebulous thing in jazz, actually, that gets carried over into a lot of topics, I think, because a lot of teachers will be like, yeah, you just got to feel it. You know, you just got to just got to feel the swing. I'm like, how do I just feel the swing? I don't, yeah. I don't know how to feel it. <laughs> but I think it comes from a lot of honestly listening and, and playing with people, pros like albums to to really internalize what they're doing. Um, and again, like that, that I'll have students do that is just like play, playing transcriptions, simple transcriptions that are heavily swinging, um, you know, uh, but that are not complicated because it doesn't need to be complicated to be swinging. And that's a very, a very bold topic that people yeah. kind of take for granted. It can be simple in swinging. And I think people always jump to like Charlie Parker, these, these high dexterity people that are just playing so many notes it doesn't have to be like that. So I start really small. And again, some of the exercises in jazz piano school are simply swinging a scale or just swinging a C major scale up and down, or maybe swinging up to the five, like in really trying to feel the rhythm, feel the pocket. And again, it is more about feel in that case, but 
along the lines with that is playing playing transcriptions with people to make sure it's you're lining up honestly spot on like you, yeah. you, if i were to listen to them i shouldn't be able to tell the difference between the person on the album hmm. or the person um playing yeah, I had um, on this podcast uh, Geraldine Anello, who's a Broadway pianist, and I talked to her a little bit about playing in different styles, not necessarily just jazz, but like rock and pop styles and about kind of groove. And she said almost all of her practicing is with recordings of some sort, whether it be just a recording of drums or a recording of the album that she's listened to, and that kind of helps her feel the rhythmic um, kind of style of what yeah. she's going for. Absolutely. Okay, so I'm switching gears. So, so as our no. listeners... Ki- probably know about you, you offer a massive amount of free content, not just on your podcast, but in a variety of ways through Jazz Piano School. I mean, that you're very big on free content. And this might seem kind of like pure altruism, but this is actually kind of part of your business and marketing strategy in general. And you wear another hat that we didn't talk about today, where you give a lot of kind of entrepreneurial advice about uh, music. So I have this great quote from you that I want to share. It's if you give 95% and ask 5%, there's literally no way you can fail. So can you talk about kind of your entrepreneurial thinking behind providing so much free content? Yeah, I always I always wanted to... My mission for starting Jazz Piano School was always to provide education that helped a student not go through what I went through. And, you know, it was, it was painful. <laughs> yeah. And you said it costs $80 for a 30 minute lesson or something like that, or 80. Well, yeah. In, in our lesson, I studied at New England Conservatory yeah, in Boston, um, taking jazz. My first jazz lessons were at New England Conservatory in Boston. I'm from Boston. And, um, you know, I studied for about three years with this teacher, um, yeah. at 80, uh, you know, 75 or 80 bucks an hour. And I studied per week, every week. Yeah. And you can do them. It's over $10,000 yeah. I spent. Yeah. And I, I really didn't, I only learned through, I tell this all the time. I only learned three tunes and I was copying the arrangement my teacher had told me. So like jazz is supposed to be spontaneous. Like I wanted to learn how to spontaneously play anything I wanted, but I could only play what he taught me. And that to me, like it'll, I'll never forget it. So that's my true fire for starting jazz piano schools. I never wanted other people to waste their time, blow their money, you know? Um, And so I, I wanted to, spread my philosophies, my teaching methods, um, through any means possible. And like, I still want to do that. And I know not everyone, I, I don't care if people sign up for a membership or not, or buy one of my products, like they'll get more help from doing that. But like, I also want to help people as much as I can through providing my podcast, providing, you know, all the stuff we do and, and just sharing, you know, sometimes I just write emails about philosophies and thoughts. And then like anyone on my email list is going to get value, you, you know, from those emails and, and just helping and thinking about the way we approach, you know, pedagogy and in, in jazz, right? I'm really, I want to push the boundaries for people not to just accept the way, you know, teachers teach jazz, but to really think about it and like, asked why like what is this what i should be learning like is this helping me so i I always took it for granted and i think a lot of us take it for granted because they're the teachers but i don't know i blew ten thousand dollars i'm not i don't want to take that for granted you know (laughs) so 
And this idea of you brought up of kind of sharing your philosophy um, is another thing that I really appreciate about your podcast. Although there's many episodes that talk about kind of some of the minutiae about jazz theory that we talked about today, you also talk about kind of motivation, about self-esteem. I mean, it's not just theory. You talk about the whole gamut, including a lot of uh, philosophy. So there's really something for everyone. Uh, now that we've kind of been talking about your podcast a lot and about Jazz Piano School, I want to just end the interview a little more broadly. Can you give our listeners a sense of kind of what you're up to now and how everyone listening can learn more about you? Yeah, it's a great segue. Honestly, like I, I love inspiring people. I love motivating people. And I, I love looking at jazz and the pursuit of, you know, becoming a great musician as more of a life philosophy, right? You can apply a lot of the things that we learn in music to life in, in how to just overall live better, right? Like I, I love living. I love living. I just love it. And, you know, like there's so many things we learn in music, patience, you know, um, discipline, like so many characteristics that we can apply. And so essentially, um, you know, jazz piano school will never stop. And uh, we're always developing new products and things like that and, and new courses and obviously free education. I have a, uh, a team of, of educators that help me as well. But um, I'm moving into uh, business education for musicians to help them. Um, it's going to be a lot of things. You know, it's going to help them in life. It's mainly going to be for musicians, um, music educators to really kind of move forward in their life and pursue their goals. Right. And, you know, I, I hear from a lot of educators that they're stuck and they want more from life, but they don't really know what that is. And so I want to share my story of how I, I created Jazz Piano School. I want to teach people how I did it, how I built the business and how what might work for them in their life to experience more and, and not just take, you know, going to work your nine to five for granted. And that's all that there is. So um, brendanlow.com is, is my new uh, platform that's going to be geared towards helping music educators and musicians um, start businesses and just gain more from their life and pursue more. And my philosophy is always just do it, do it all. Like, do it, do as much as you can, like mm -hmm. learn as much as you can go out with many friends as you can travel as much as you can, you know, speak as many languages as you can just try and do it everything. Like we only have one life, you know, and it's it to me, it always feels like if I'm not trying to explore some of my ambitions or my desires, then I'm kind of putting my, my one life here on earth to waste. So that's very inspiring. Thank you. And I'll definitely include a link to uh, brendanlow.com in the show notes for all of our listeners to uh, possibly uh, look into it to uh, take this course that you're describing. Uh, well, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. I have to say, although I, as I mentioned in this interview, I had a little bit of jazz training growing up, kind of sporadic here and there. Nowadays, basically all of my education in jazz comes from you <laughs> and your podcast. And there's been so much that I've learned listening to um, everything that you do. So I really appreciate everything you do. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Awesome, Ben. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. You're a great interview interviewer. So I really appreciate it. It was one of the better interviews I've definitely done. So thank you. I appreciate your, oh, thank your you. research. That's very nice of you. Yeah, your research thank you. into my background. Thank you. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. If you have any feedback about the episode you just heard or about the podcast in general, feel free to reach out to me through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com.